Good morning. This is Arthur Schwartz. Uh, the podcast is Pursuing Justice 2021. And with me this morning is Charles Barron, who somehow I never had on my radio show in the three years he was there. Oh, really? uh, who's probably one of the better known uh, voices in the city of New York uh, uh, because he's been He's been around maybe even longer than I have. Uh, uh, Charles and I, Charles and I both go back to the '60s. Yeah. And um, uh, Charles, you and I first—I think I met—I met you once sitting in the waiting room of a 504 Democratic Club endorsement meeting. Um, And you know, and, and I'm not sure we, we, maybe we ran into each other twice in one of those <laughs> endorsement, waiting to get into an endorsement meeting. Now you wait in a virtual lobby to get into these meetings. <laughs> right. You don't, you, you don't necessarily see the other people who are waiting, right? That's right. Uh, we actually got to sit and talk for a while. And I was, you know, I was like, oh, this is Charles Barron. He's this guy who like uh, riles everybody up. And you were like, <laughs> the calmest, nicest, yeah, most easygoing guy. But people say that about, you should know, people say that about me too. And then and then they call me all kinds of names about being, um, you know, bombastic, uh, loud, oh, yeah. irreverent. Um, you can't trust me because, you know, <clears throat> I don't make deals, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. So so we're, we're really, you know, in some ways, I'm white, you're black, we're, not, I'm not the, it's not the same, but in some ways we were sort of cut out of the same mold, which maybe has something to do with, maybe has something to do with um, the era that we got politicized in. So just right, me, do, right now, you're, you're in office, you're in office as what? A New York State Assemblyman. I've been in the Assembly for the last six, seven years, and I spent 12 years in the City Council. And, and, that, and presently you're running for City Council? Yes, my wife, Inez Barron, she was, is the city council member now, and she's term limited out. So um, I'm going to run for the city council and give up the state assembly seat. And then after that, I want to, after that city council run, my second term in the city council or tenureship in the city council, I plan to look at how do we deal with cooperative economics, you know, community land trust, worker cooperatives, a more of a socialistic, a communal African communalistic approach to economics and not capitalistic to see how we can bring that uh, into existence because we, we did well in the political arena. Uh, 12 years in the city council, we were able to bring in like whew, three new $100 million schools in our district, about six parks renovated for over $40 million. Uh, a brand new $12 million youth center. Uh, we were able to stop gentrification in my 60th assembly district and the 42nd council district. We're not gentrified. It basically covers East New York predominantly. And then I got a little piece of Canarsie in East Flatbush and Brownsville. But because of the power of the city council, because this is all about power, Arthur, you know, we could talk, stream, holler, demonstrate. And I do that. And I'm certainly not against it. But that's influence. When you do that, you're trying to influence people in power to make decisions in your best interest.
But when you have that seat locally, particularly a city council seat, especially when they have the power to vote on the budget, they have the power with municipal city legislation, they have the power oversight over city agencies, and most importantly, they have land use power through the EULA process, the Uniform Land Use uh, Review process. We're able to determine anything that's built on city-owned land in my district. The land use committee is going to call me up and say, Baron, how do you feel about this project? If I say no, the project's dead. If I say yes, the project has to accommodate the changes that I want. That's power. No demonstration, no press conference, no screaming and hollering. They sit down with me and any other city council member and the land use committee will honor the wishes of the local council member. And on rare occasions with the speaker say, look, I know y'all wanna honor your colleague, but I need this project and they override what the council member wants in the district, but that's rare. So that's a kind of a power that you can use, especially if you're radical, revolutionary, and not afraid to say so. I didn't get in there. They, people used to tell me, don't tell folk you used to be in the Black Panther Party as a teenager. Don't talk so radical and so black and stop getting in the governor's face and the mayor's face and the speaker. Do that after you get in. <laughs> I said, no, this is who I am. And the people in my uh, community appreciated it and voted for me. So uh, it's it's uh, so when when we both win, because I'm running in, I'm running for Corey Johnson's seat. Oh, I hope you win. And um, uh, when we both win, it's good it's good to know I can have a mentor because you know first it's interesting because uh, the first thing you're talking about is land use, right? Mm -hmm. And I know from being on a community board for 24 years. Oh, um, how key land use issues are to what a community looks like. Gotcha. Uh, the, and how important the decisions that the city council member makes about land use are to really seeing who they are as a person. Mm -hmm. There has been a lot of controversy in my part of town um, my district includes Soho, mm -hmm. and the mayor has proposed rezoning mm -hmm. so that there can be more mandatory inclusionary housing built there, taller buildings. And he says that that's the only way to get affordable housing in that part of town. Mandatory inclusionary housing has never led to affordable housing anywhere. It's, it was the mayor's big thing it's been an utter failure as far as I'm concerned. And yet here it is seven years into his tenure, he's still pushing the same program. And the sitting city council member is, is waffling on the question about where she's gonna stand on, on, on this rezoning. Now there it's being opposed, not because it's gonna gentrify that part of town because it's already a gentried part of town, right. but because it's gonna add tall buildings and it's not gonna address the need in our community for the, to build affordable housing. Uh, and relying, in my opinion, relying on developers 
to put private money into building buildings and have the then so that we can have their largesse to have apartments that people can afford, which then become apartments that nobody can afford anyway. I, I joke about it forums how there's a there's a um, affordable housing development that just opened on 44th Street that to get a one bedroom you have to make 70. So that you, the second part of mandatory inclusionary housing is is the income limits. Uh, you have to make $71,000 a year to be is the minimum to be in the a one bedroom. And my daughter, who is a public defender in Brooklyn, she's been there three years. She doesn't make $71,000 a year. So she's considered too not, not, she doesn't make enough money to afford affordable housing. Uh, and she would never consider herself to be poor. You know, she makes a decent amount of money. She's a lawyer, um, but she can't get it. So, so that means nothing's gonna be affordable right. in that building even though some developer got lots of zoning changes uh, and who else knows what el whatever else uh, to build some big tall building, <clears throat> you know, where 25% have been put aside. Um, how, what, what you, you say that uh, as a city council member, you, you, you know, you were there and then um, uh, Inez uh, has been in office under de Blasio has she been able to stop proposed projects or is it that they just don't even dare? Let me, let me, let me tell you, you raise an excellent, excellent point for this conversation. They don't even dare, number one, because they know better, because we know better. That, that nonsensical, pseudo-progressive de Blasio talking about mandatory inclusion. You know what that is? Just what you said, 25%. Right. And it's optional. So for the developer to get subsidies, which is free money from the government, when poor people are on welfare, they call it welfare. When rich developers get free money, they call it subsidies. Either we're all on subsidies or we're all on welfare. But they get free money and they get bonds. They float bonds for them because that's how you get out, give out capital money through bonding. So between the bonds, between the, 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 uh, the subsidies, this is what these rich white developers get. And then they say they'll build 20, 25% affordability. Affordable to who? You have to go by what you said, the area median income, the AMI. That's how you stop gentrification. In your case, it's a class issue. In our case, it's a race issue. When you say gentry, the gentry is the elite. That's what gentry means, the elites. So when they come into a district, I always say, what's the AMI requirement for this project? And they'll tell me uh, it's 80% of New York City's AMI. Well, New York City's AMI right now is $104,000 for a family of three. Well, 80% of that is like $70,000, $80,000, as you said. So if... And then I would ask the developer, this is when I first came in, what's my neighborhood AMI? Because he said, oh, we're going to build 120 units of affordable housing. You're going to love this. We're going to create jobs and we even do a community benefits agreement. Yeah, right, right. What's my neighborhood area median income? Do you know that, sir? He said, no. I said, so you come into my office. Do I have stupid written on my forehead? You're going to sit there and tell me you're building affordable housing and you don't even know 
the area median income of my local neighborhood, this meeting is terminated. I ended the meeting. He went away for three. I made him wait three weeks. He said, I can look that up now. And I said, no, not. <laughs> I said, no, go, go find it out. Came back. My area median income, Arthur, is $36,000 for a family of three. So nobody in my neighborhood is getting in this development. So I told him, this is what it's going to be, or else I'm not voting for the project. You're going to do the income ban of my neighborhood. 50% of us make 35000 or less. So 40% of the AMI, 50% of the AMI is what 50% of these units are going to go for. Another 20% of our people make from 35000 to 50000 So you're going to have that income range. And then there's 10% of us that make maybe 60 to 80,000. So we don't want to leave them out. So we're going to use 10, 15% of the units are going to be for them. That's what you're going to do, or I'm not passing it. And then he said, will you sign off on it now? I said, no. He said, why not? I said, what's the rent going to be? What's the rent going to be? He said, well, for a one bedroom apartment, it'll be uh, 2,500. I said, you must be out of your mind. Well, let me tell you what the rents are going to be. First of all, you're going to do less studios because they tried to do a whole lot of studios so they can make a lot of money and have a lot of units. We have too many, you know, three member families. And, you know, so we made them do one bedrooms, two bedrooms, three bedrooms. I said the one bedroom is going to be uh, $750 a month. The two bedrooms is going to be $950 a month. And the three bedrooms are going to be $1,100. I, I can't make that money. Yes, you can. I looked at your portfolio. You're going to get millions of dollars from the city. So what you're not going to make is $12 million as a developer's fee. That's what you're not going to make. You're only going to make $6 million, or else I'm not voting for it. That's why there's no gentrification in East New York. When I came in there, or at least in my district, because there's a northern part that de Blasio and the council member did gentrify. De Blasio came in my community or the northern part, we have a little piece of, and he got together with the council member there, bringing in like 6,000 units of housing and half of them, 80% uh, of them are market. And 20% is affordable, that's not affordable. This is de Blasio, straight talk, I did better with affordable housing under Bloomberg and Sean Donovan than de Blasio. He was worse more gentrification he proposed for my neighborhood because it didn't work with us, but with the northern part it did because the council member, you know, sold out, even though the community board was against it, the borough board was against it, we were against it. Once the council member says yes, it's a wrap. So, you know, it's I, I one interesting point you made that that uh, and uh, so it brings up the second question a little separate from housing um so you said in my neighborhood it's a class question but in my neighborhood in my district it's really also a race question okay because the lack of affordability in my opinion is one of the reasons why in the last census it's going to be interesting to see the current census but i don't think it's going to be any different in Community Board 2, which runs from 14th Street to Canal, uh, over to uh, Bowery and 4th Avenue. 
the census said that it was 94% white, mm. 4% Asian because a little corner of the district is in Chinatown mm. and 2% black and Hispanic. Can you imagine? I mean, I say in articles all the time that we are whiter than the most segregated neighborhoods in Birmingham, Alabama. Mm. Mm. 94% white. Wow. Now the, the district is a little different but mainly because there's two NYCHA developments. My council district goes up to, up to Columbus Circle okay. and there's two NYCHA developments uh, on, the, on the west side, which are surrounded by luxury housing. Mm -hmm. They're surrounded on both sides, all sides, four sides by luxury housing. Uh, and um, so it's not, to me, it, it's, it's not just a question of, of class because it's also a question of race because- well, that's, it, true. that's true, that's true. It's always race and class combined. Because you can't say that, mm -hmm. oh, black and Hispanic people don't want to live in Greenwich Village, Chelsea, or Correct. Hell's Kitchen, Correct. right? Correct. Uh, why not? Uh, it's convenient. It's very convenient, mm -hmm. especially if you work in Manhattan. You know, I live in the village and I have an office at City Hall. I take two stops to, this, to get, it takes me 15 minutes to get to work. It's wonderful, right? It's a, mm. Fantastic life. And I did that because I live here part because when I had kids, I didn't want to have a long commute to, to get to work. I grew up in the North Bronx. I knew what it was like to take an hour to get to get to Manhattan to go to a job. Right. I knew what it was like. My dad, you know, had to leave 45 minutes before he had to get to work or an hour before he had to get to work, you know, which cut two hours out of his time with his family in the course of a day. So but I but I have this, you know, there's a second part of this, which is and it's an interesting question because you and I have been through movements. Uh, I mean, I was in a Maoist group, so I was I was in a Maoist group. I was in a Maoist group that actually got the Young Lords, which was sort of the counterpart of the Black Panther Party. The Young Lords became the Puerto Rican Revolutionary Workers Organization, uh, and it was chaired by uh, Juan Gonzalez. Oh, wow. Juan Gonzalez, who became a reporter, and now he he's on uh, mm -hmm. on uh, on the radio doing a doing a, um, a show, you know, but Juan was the chairman of the Puerto Rican Revolutionary Workers Organization. We were buddies. Mm -hmm. He was at Columbia when I was a student at Columbia. He led building takeovers. I mean, the guy was pretty radical, dude. Oh yeah. And uh, so I was in a group too, right? And I, and I remember all, I think I wrote a paper in my senior year about, uh, uh, in college, <laughs> about supporting the notion of having a, a separate black nation in, within the, the territory of the United States. Yeah. I wrote this long intellectual paper <laughs> about supporting that trend in the black community, which was coming out of some of the stuff in the, in the 60s. I was doing it from a Marxist perspective, but, you know, but, but I did that. So, so, but there's always been this question about in, in New York, and I think it's, it's a key question to our future. And that's about integration, right? Integration. So one of, the, one of the problems that we have in New York City, I think, uh, is that because New York City is so balkanized, it's balkanized. So you not only, now it's not only, you have black communities, you have white communities, you have Puerto Rican communities, you have Chilean communities, you have Ecuadorian communities, you have, you go out to Jamaica, Queens, it's all Bangladeshi. You go out there, it's, I, I, my, my brother used to have a, uh, an apartment there. So I go there every once in a while 
for, for various reasons, Hillside Avenue, you go there at Christmas time, there's no Christmas lights because everybody's Muslim. It, the entire neighborhood, right? So people live in enclaves, let's call them enclaves. Um, then what happens is they are, so even in Manhattan where they, they there's still some, uh, in the East Village, there's still some, because of public housing, because there's a big project on the, I, I call it the projects, right? I still call it the projects. You probably learned that word too. Yes. Yeah. Housing, the, like there's a big thing. project that runs from about 14th Street all the way down to Grand Street all along the East River, right? A place where nobody would have ever wanted to live. Now, now the gentrification pushes right up against it at Avenue D. Uh -huh. um, but the neighborhood still is, because of those buildings, there's still probably population-wise a majority Hispanic. Uh -huh. The schools are horrible, right? So the very often the neighborhoods where that are concentrated with minorities. Um, I don't even like that word because probably white people are a minority in the city at this point. <laughs> Correct. But, but that are populated by people of color. Um, they all, they often have the worst schools, and those schools don't give kids the same opportunity. So the answer that the Blasio has come up with is, okay, let's spread them out. Let's send those kids a, a half an hour away uh, in middle school to a white community to go to school mixed with white kids where could, because those schools have better results. They have uh, higher graduation rates. They have more kids that get into the Bronx High School of Science um, and Stuyvesant. But what is, is and to me, it's like one of the things that I say when I, I just wrote a piece last night because I read the New York Times had a very interesting piece last Sunday about the draft riots of 1863, which I had never really, I think I, I remember it vaguely, you know, from history. It was the most, one of the most racist events that ever happened in the history of New York. Thousands yeah. of people after the Emancipation Proclamation, Lincoln also coupled that with a draft. And of course, all the people being drafted were, they weren't drafting the free black people. They were drafting all these white working class people because rich people could buy, you could pay to get out of the draft. So there were riots in New York City, thousands of people marauding up and down lower Manhattan because that was New York City in those days. Um, and kill, they killed a thousand black people they hung them. They burned them. They burned down the houses. They burned down businesses where black people worked. They chased people down the street. I it was the New York Times had a little piece in it last Sunday, and then I went and did some research online. It's amazing. You can actually read newspaper accounts from back from 1863, and then it said that one of the consequences of of what went on was. Um, the, all the black people left Lower Manhattan. They left, they ran away. It was like in four, in five days, they managed to get rid of, um, to get rid of uh, everybody that lived here. And, you know, to never return, I think to never return. So the, the question is that, that I want to pose to you is at that point, you know, it said everybody left, all black people left Lower Manhattan, just ran away. They went hiding. They were hiding in the swamps in New Jersey. They were hiding in police stations in up, up further up north in Manhattan. 
never to come back is my, I sort of tagged that on. I wrote something about it this morning in the local newspaper. So the, the but the question is, so when I, when I talk about, I talk about how horrible it is to, that the only people that on my block that are black are the people delivering packages, you know, the UPS drivers and the, and the, and the postal workers and the people delivering food from stores. But none of, you know, if you, if you saw a random black people walking down the street, you would, per, you would think, you would know they don't live here, right? They don't live here. The question I have though is, in your opinion, is should a goal be, I mean, I know one goal has to be that more resources have to go into say in the schools in black and Hispanic and, and Chilean and Ecuadorian and Bangladeshi communities. That, that's, that's a given, right? Because uh, the reason that those schools are failing is because they don't have the same resources that the schools in white communities have. But is it, should it be an ultimate goal that we need to integrate communities more in order to achieve more equality and more, you know, less of mandating money to certain districts because they're not doing well and to create a stasis where everybody's getting the same? Um, well, you know, uh, Arthur, my goal is not integration. My goal is revolution. We need a radical systemic change in the colonial capitalist system with its warmongering imperialistic foreign policy and its ideology of racism is an ideology that permeates every institution. So my goal is black power, black self-determination. Martin Luther King didn't want to integrate because he wanted to sit next to uh, white folk on couches or he wanted to go to their schools. He wanted greater resources. So he even said, hey, you know, we integrated the lunch counter, but now we don't have the money to buy the lunch. So it's really, uh, we need a radical systemic changing of the system. And in the meantime, we have to have an in the meantime strategy. The reason why I got into the electoral arena is because wherever black people constitute the majority in a community, we should control the land, the politics, the economics, the uh, means of production. We should control all of the cultural and social institutions. That is the first edict of the 10 point program of the Black Panther Party. Uh, we wanted to determine the destiny. We wanted the power to determine the destiny of the black community. And we wanted to control all of the institutions that control our lives in the black community. So that's my in the meantime strategy. And ultimately we need to liberate our Africa uh, under socialism, a socialist economy. And we need to liberate Africans spread out in the diaspora, wherever we are in South America, North America, and the West Indies, wherever we are, we need as an African people to be a self-determining people with power. So for me, integration hurt. When we had Tulsa in 1921, they called it the Black Wall Street. It was really Little Africa first. And we had Rosewood in Florida, and we had Wilmington in North Carolina. These were Black communities because of segregation. They couldn't integrate. So they decided that they would flourish amongst themselves. They owned the land, the politics. In Tulsa, they even owned oil wells and they owned the agricultural 
business, they were flourishing. And the right, white racists, coupled with the government, burnt it down, killed them. They burnt it down in Rosewood and killed them. They burnt it down in Wilmington and killed them. We were flourishing as all black communities and they burnt it down. When we integrated now in the 21st century, here we are a trillion dollar consumer market, black people in America, a trillion dollar consumer market. And we don't own no land in our communities. We don't run the economy. We don't control the police, they're out of control. We don't control the hospitals, the education system. So we are in fact, domestic neo-colonial colonies of a racist colonial capitalist system in America. So they control all of that from the outside or people coming from the outside inside. And the black community is worse off in terms of power and control, not in terms of how much than they were in Tulsa in the 1920s before the, the raid of Tulsa. What black community in this country do we own the, all the land and the businesses and the economy? So my fight is not for integration. Look what happened to the so-called Negro leaves when Jackie Robinson integrated. They were doing great. They were doing better than the white major league baseball, but they integrated, took the best players from the so-called Negro leagues and that was destroyed. And we had in basketball, the National Basketball Association started in 1949 and the Harlem Globetrotters and the Harlem Wrens, the Harlem Renaissance and, and games, they couldn't join the league, the white leagues, the two white leagues, they united to become the NBA. They couldn't join that. So they played exhibition games and they were whipping them, beating them badly. So they wanted to join the NBA as teams. They said, no, because y'all would win all the time. They didn't allow them to integrate, so they took the players, and those leagues were destroyed, the Harlem's Rams. Integration hurt us. It didn't help us. So we need to fight for the resources, the political economic control over all of the institutions that control our lives. Because whoever controls your environment, politically and economically and socially, will determine whether you live or die. So, so um. Let's talk about why run for city council. Well, because as, as opposed to as opposed to being a revolutionary organizer. It's not right? it's not an either or. Okay. As a revolutionary organizer, electoral politics is a tactic. Just like demonstrations are a tactic. Just like holding tribunals are tactics just like press conferences, tactics. So why not, as a revolutionary, get into the electoral arena on a local level, but the key is maintain your revolutionary ideology. Don't hide it in order to get elected. The Black Panther Party in 1973, right after the great Gary Indiana National Black Independent Political convention where over 10,000 black people from all walks of life, from socialists to capitalists, from, you know, Democrats to whatever, independents, nationalists, revolutionary nationalists, they came together in Gary, Indiana, 
and had the Black Political Convention. And at that convention, they were supposed to start an independent Black party and, and look into the electoral arena. Well, after that convention, the Black Panther Party wrote, uh, ran Bobby Seale for mayor in Oakland. And Elaine Brown ran for the city council seat in Oakland. And Bobby Seale shocked them. He almost won. It was it came into a runoff with a racist Oakland mayor. And he, Bobby got 40% of the vote. So they mm -hmm. were looking to get into that arena. But after that convention, a lot of the Black revolutionaries went back to doing the revolutionary work and didn't get into the electoral arena. And so you had the Black neo-colonial puppets of the Democratic Party winning all the seats. So all of the, the, the Black uh, political representation increased <clears throat> a thousandfold. We went in there with two, 3,000 elected officials. After that, it shot up to 7,000. And now there are 13,000, some say 16,000, Black elected officials across the country even had a Black president. But you know, Black faces in high places doesn't mean Black power. Sometimes they put a black face on the colonial capitalist administration and they pick and choose these blacks because they know that they will continue to espouse the policies of capitalism and the two party Republican and democratic system. Most of us in the democratic party, take New York, <clears throat> the head of the assembly, black, the head of the Senate, black. The majority leader in the assembly, black. The attorney general, black. The majority leader in the city council, black. The public advocate, black. The head of the largest democratic organization in the country, Kings County, black. The head of the Democratic Party in Manhattan, black ahead of the Democratic Party in Queens, black. Ahead of the Democratic Party in the Bronx, black. Borough president of Queens, black. Borough president of Brooklyn, black. Head of the biggest unions in the city, 1199, 32BJ, DC 37, black. All of that black in these powerful influential positions and we have the most poverty we've had in a long time. Mass incarceration continues. $193 billion state budget, a $92 billion city budget, and abject poverty all over our communities. Because these are Blacks that are handpicked. These are Blacks that are grew, groomed by the Democratic Party, white male leadership, particularly Governor Cuomo and Bill de Blasio and some of the whites in the top levels, even if they give you a uh, high position like Hakeem Jeffries has, the fifth largest in Claiborne, the other a brother from the South, fourth top position, irrelevant, because we're not looking for a change in complexion. We're looking for a change in the direction of the country, a change in not personalities, but a change in policies. None of that changes because they're all a part of this two-party racist parasitic capitalist system. And they espouse, they're almost like they, they, they're sitting in for the white 
capitalist that's been exploiting us, they'll put a black face on it. And then we think we've arrived. Under Barack Obama, we've had more military bases built in Africa than any other president <clears throat> under Barack Obama. Under Barack Obama, we had a black attorney general, US attorney general, Eric Holder, eight years, we had Michael Brown killed in Ferguson, no indictment. Little Tamir Rice killed, little baby, toy gun, no indictment. Trayvon Martin and no indictment. Not a single indictment from the Barack Obama administration in eight years under all of that police terrorism in our community and not one indictment. The best he did around police brutality is when his bourgeois black friend, Skip Gates, Louis Gates, was harassed by a police officer in his own home. He had them come to the White House and have some beer. That was his response to police brutality. So we're not looking for black faces in high places. We're looking for black radicals, revolutionaries to get into this electoral system like we did. I don't compromise. What I'm saying to you now, I said on the floor of the state assembly, I said that we need a socialist system. Capitalism is fatally flawed. I don't say this just to our crowd. I said that on the state assembly floor, I interrupted the governor's state of the state address. The most prestigious event in the state is Governor Cuomo's state of the state. I interrupted him three times and said, uh, you're a hypocrite because the budget cut money from the uh, uh, programs that would have given aid to the homeless to supplement their rent. You didn't pay the campaign for fiscal equity, $4 billion for poor black and brown schools that the court said you owed them because of racism. You're a hypocrite. I did that in front of everybody. So we need to have radicals, revolutionaries. And when you say revolutionary work, what is it? It's rallies, it's demonstrations, it's, it's speaking our ideology and it's having a platform to do that. And that's what the electoral arena can bring you. Okay, uh, uh, that that was it. That was. <laughs> <laughs> that's what keeps me in trouble. <laughs> that that's and you can say stuff like that, and I I have to be careful about it. Um, you know, uh, I I recall in um, in two thousand sixteen, I I was I supported Bernie Sanders because he was he wasn't cut out of the mold. He didn't play by the rules, right? He called for revolution. He, he called for, my God, it sounded so radical in those days, a Green New Deal, a $15 narrow minimum wage, uh, Medicare for all. Now it's the party line, right? Four years later, right? But then it was radical, right? Now it's the party line. I mean, it, it we'd have a $15 minimum wage if it wasn't for one Democratic senator from West Virginia. And... Uh, I, I, we have, I, I had a meeting just the other day on Zoom with Chuck Schumer. He was meeting, he's meeting with the left, right? And he wants to make friends with the left. You know, in fact, he made a joke about my Bernie poster behind me. You know, he's saying all that stuff. Medicare for all, yes, $15 an hour minimum wage, cancel student debt, da 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 right? So I supported Bernie. And we got to go to the, I got to go, I got to be a delegate, got elected to the convention. 
went to the convention, was on the floor of the convention. That was, and uh, we had a big debate and our caught, we had 117 delegates from New York. It was a nice group of, of fairly like progressive minded people, mostly younger, some older folks. We would meet every day to talk about what to do at the, you know, during the convention. Do we hold up signs during a speaker? Do we stand on a chair and turn our backs? Us in the California delegation, we were sort of coordinating, like, how do we make a statement? You know, we know Hillary is going to get nominated, but what, what kind of statement is this nationally televised uh, to make some kind of statement? And big discussion came up when Obama spoke. How do you deal with Barack Obama? How do you respond to Barack Obama when he speaks? Now, I thought, I recall in 2008, um, there was, Obama was running, it was, it was 2007, it was in the summer of 2007. You know, it's like Obama's running and there's a local meeting to talk about supporting Barack Obama. So, you know, I, I, I was like, wow, maybe a black guy could run for president of the United States. I gotta be there, right? Cause, cause I'm, I'm someone that's always talked, I mean, I, I don't wanna pat my chest. My, my 15 year old daughter will tell me that I have lots of white skin privilege and I should be ashamed of calling myself, you know, anything but a racist, right? But that, that's, that's what they're learning, you know, in some schools these days, right? I, in fact, I'll just, uh, on the side, my, my, um, my daughter came home after the Floyd uh, killing. They had a big school-wide meeting in her school to talk about the killing and racism. And, and my daughter came home and said, my, she's in 14, dad, do you know what, do you know what white skin privilege is? I said, of course. I said, but you know, I'm I'm counsel to Black Lives Matter and the Black Institute and Black Leadership Action Coalition in New York and Bertha Lewis is one of my best friends. And she said, so what? Right? She said, so what? But anyway, so there is this so black president, black candidate. I go to this meeting. It's like 800 people in this church in July of 2007. So I was a you know. I supported Obama. I read his stuff. I could tell he wasn't particularly radical. John Edwards was far more to the left than 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 Barack Obama was. He had other problems. And you know who was even further? Uh, Kucinich. <laughs> right. Oh, Kucinich, right. Yes. So, um, and then, you know, and, and I like, you know, and then I was continually disappointed um, when Obama was uh, president. And in fact, in 2009, I became general counsel of ACORN. You remember Acorn? Yeah. And Acorn was a post 60s effort to spread radical organizing all over the United States. And it was fairly successful. Uh, in the summer of, of uh, 2009, right after he, right after Gate, he had that beer in the White House <laughs> with the cop who had arrested his friend at Harvard. Um, the Republicans, the, actually the Breitbart, <clears throat> Mr. Breitbart himself, before Steve Bannon was in charge, devised this thing to go like send uh, uh, some some undercover guy who likes to embarrass people to Acorn offices dressed as a um, I don't remember that dressed as a pimp and a prostitute. He was dressed as the pimp and he brought along this woman as a prostitute. And the, our, our staff was all black. It was all black except in we had forty offices. It was all in minority communities, <clears throat> and they went to ten of them. <clears throat> and they said, 
we want a mortgage. Can you help us get a mortgage? And the person was like, you know, do you make a lot of money? No, I don't make any money. Sure, we'll help you get a mortgage. And they tape recorded it and they broadcast it on first on Breitbart, then on Fox News. And before you know it, there was a bill in Congress to, to stop all funding. Acorn was getting about $10 million a year. I remember in that. federal grants. They, had, they ran on a $40 million budget, but $10 million of it was coming from federal grants, you know, that they got from housing budgets and, and, uh, and clean environmental justice budgets and whatever else they, they sort of came up with. They were very good at getting government money. There was a bill and it went to the, it was being debated in the, in the House and Obama, the, the trouble that they had gotten into was they had collected one and a half million, they'd registered one and a half million black people the year before. Obama gave them $10 million to go do that registration work, his campaign. So they called Obama and they said, you're gonna stand with us? And he sent Patrick Gaspard, who was his political director to New York. And he, he sat down with a few leaders of ACORN. He said, sorry, the president says he can't, he can't stand with you. He was doing that to people all over the place, right? Oh yeah. And, and then, you know, Congress voted to defund ACORN. And when that happened, all the foundation said, forget it, we're not giving you any money. And we had to close the organization, right? Um, there are spinoffs like New York Communities for Change was used to be right. New York ACORN, but wasn't the same, but Obama, didn't have his supporters back. This was a key supporter, key right, right. supporter. Can I right? that? And, and I'm saying, so the point I'm making is you're, you're right. Just to look, I mean, that list that you gave is astounding, I think, uh, about how many leaders, leaders in New York That's are black. And, it, and there's a good chance we're gonna elect a black mayor. You know? Very good chance. And the conditions won't change, let's see. And let me just say this about Bernie Sanders and the white left, because we've had history in the Black Panther Party with the white left. Um, remember SDS, the Student Democratic Society, and then their radical movement underground was the weather, the weather underground. Right. And you know we hooked up with the white left. You remember Jerry Rubin and Abby Hoffman, the yippee, yeah. yippee kind of movement. I met them, yeah. Right. So our problem with the white left is that at the top is very white male dominated. And then when you come down the structure, whether it's DSA or whether it's uh, the Working Families Party, you know, Working Families Party, Bill Lipton, Bob Masters, Dan Cantor, below that is diversity. So in Bernie Sanders case. Now all the leadership is black, by the way. And yeah, the and that's, that's similar to what the capitalists are doing, you know, but who's really controlling it? I know, I know they are but who's really controlling it? Whoever raises the money is controlling it. Um, and also uh, with Bernie Sanders, you know, just like I was, we supported Barack Obama and I offered critical support and people didn't even want me to criticize him, even if we, although we agreed for critical support, but because that's where the black masses were, first black president, you know, let's give him a shot. I try not to do the lesser to evil stuff. I'm not there anymore. Uh, but we did it at that time. Second time around, said, so can't do it. This guy is horrible. He's what, he, he's what I knew he was from the beginning. I was talking to Dr. Cornell West, a good friend of mine, about that. How, why do we support him in the first place? 
and knowing who he was, and everybody has their rationale for doing it. And then why did you hold on? You know, at some point you got to say, all right, we gave it a shot. We didn't support him the second time. My problem with Bernie Sanders is that when it comes to black people, he has some challenges. And when it came to issues like reparations, Bernie said, and this reparations they were asking him to support wasn't even a bill to get reparations. It was a study. H.R. 40 was a study. I mean, they twisted his arm and later around, he reluctantly came around. But the things he said, um, it's not about giving y'all a check. What? Insulting us like that? Reducing our reparations movement to getting a check? Oh, it's, uh, it's not going to happen. Yeah, well, neither is the Green New Deal. But you are doing it on principle. Uh, when it came to the crime bill, I did that because there was something in it for women. Hell with black and brown people, what it did to us. But he, along with Biden, supported the crime bill. And when it came to the Afghanis war, he was weak. When it came to uh, Palestine and the state of Israel, he was weak. And his socialism is weak. It is not really a revolutionary kind of socialism. It's more of a uh, almost uh, uh, Edward Bernstein, the evolutionary kind of socialism. And I remember reading about Eugene Debb way back then. He was, they had problems with race then. The CWA, the Communist Workers' Party, Socialist Workers' Party, when it came to race, it was a big issue. Debb and others, and even though he, Eugene Debb, you know, decided, okay, I'll support the Negro cause or whatever they called it back then. So all of this racism, even in the Democratic Socialist Party history, Michael Harrington, I read his book, he, you know, he separated, you know, and that's how they formed DSA eventually, you know, some of the internal conflict. So in studying that movement, and when we look at even Marx himself, you know, Marx uh, met Engels in 1844 and 1848, they did the conflict. Communist influenced the world. In 1861, they did Das Kapital, three volumes. 1883, Marx is gone. 1895, Engels is gone. And when you look at Marx's analysis of capitalism, it was in it was a, a, a you know European in the 1800s. He's already analyzing analyzing a system that had a massive amount of wealth. Where did you get the wealth from? Africa. Marx called it primitive accumulation of wealth. Where was the analysis for 14, in the 1400s is when Europe invaded Africa, colonized it. Marx, Marx wasn't a thought. Ibn Khaldun talked about surplus value of uh, profits, you know, of income. Ibn Khaldun. Uh, an African from Tunisia in 1400s. So 1400, 1500, no Marx analysis, 1600, no Marx analysis. Why? Because it was in Africa and colonialism is when it came, he focused on Europe and it's European analysis of capitalism who had all of this capital and he doesn't even get into the depths of where it came from, the enslavement of African people and the theft of land from the indigenous people. So when we talk about burning and the left, we got to be honest, truthful, and, and, and highlight the contradictions.
because that's why some of us like myself, we are looking to do strong black African, focusing on Africa, not Europe and, and Marxism. A lot of the African leaders in the 1960s, Kwame Nkrumah, Seiko Toure, uh, Julius Nyerere, Patrice Lumumba, you know, they embraced Marxism, uh, but they had an African communalism and African socialism because Marx did not uh, take into consideration the primitive accumulation of the capitalist wealth that went to Europe, and that was the colonialization of Africa. So we only have a couple of minutes left, but I just want to get back to the city council. Um, besides, besides that, it would you know I think this city council, even if I win, um, when you win, largely largely black and Hispanic, it's going to be it's going to be one of the more black and Hispanic city councils ever elected, right? You know, you, and it's gonna be a lot of impressionable people and your voice is gonna be an interesting one in a council of basically freshmen, right? 35 yeah. open seats. It'll be it'll be interesting because when you were elected to the council the first time, <clears throat> it was in a book, there was no term limits and people had yeah, been there. Well, I actually got elected because of term limits the first time. And it was the same thing as this time, 35 seats. But somehow that group was radical, so radical, they elected first uh, Gifford Miller to be speaker and then Christine State Quinn. number one. And then Christine Quinn, who was- State number two. Right. So I, maybe that won't happen this time. Um, but talk about, I just want to, in the, in the five minutes we have left, your, your ideas on community land bank, community- Yes, like, yes, okay. yes. I what, think what we need that? to increase, right now, I'm even fighting for that in, in the state that we have to get into community land trust so that the public property land should be given over to CLTs, not these profit-making corporations. Uh, we need to get some land in community land trust. So therefore, if the community owned the land, then they can determine what's being built on the land and rent it out to whom they choose, lease it out to whom they choose and build on it when they choose. We need to get into, um, uh, banks, community banks, and we need to get into community health clinics, and we need to get into a um, worker cooperatives where the workers own the means of production, they own the enterprise, and even in the worker cooperatives owning of the enterprise, they also include community ownership on boards, so that these boards will consist of community people and workers who own the enterprise and, and develop the economy. To me, that's a socialistic approach to economics and not just, you know, buy black or, uh, you know, campaign, or even if it's a capitalist black, just buy it because they're black, but we need to get into those conceptual things. And with this new council, it's going to be important for us to influence the budget and the land use process so that the people benefit and not those elites. And 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 it, how do you get land into the community land? I'm just curious about that. How, well, what land goes into the community land. Uh, it's very trust? believe me, it, it's it's difficult to do, but easy to understand. Um, the 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 community uh, the, uh, planning city planning commission, which is the mayor's agency, they I told them I want to identify all of the public city owned land in my district, and they showed me all the properties that were owned by the city. Once you see that, then the city planning commission sends out a proposal. 
a RFP, and it's these white, predominantly male, rich developers that they give the land to sometime for a dollar, and now they sell it to them for a little more because they need the money. You could do the same thing, set asides of city-owned land for community land trust. And then I had $100 million in a not-for-profit uh, housing program because I was angry because they passed the 421A uh, program in the state. And I said, we should ax that because it's for the elites. And so to, to you know, cool me out or whatever, they gave $100 million to a not-for-profit uh, developers. So we need to increase that money so that we can have not-for-profit money, community land trust with land committed to them by the city council. It's easy. The same way they give it to the profit-making developers, you can give it. Some, some stuff doesn't even go through a RFP. They just give it to them. So the only power we had is that I can't determine who the developer is, but I certainly can determine what's going to be developed on that land. So that's the only power I had. That's how we stopped gentrification. But now we got to say to the city, we want the community to own city-owned land. Very interesting. Uh, so very interesting. I, I, uh, one last question. How do we fix NYCHA? NYCHA, I think that we should look at one on the federal level. Biden talked all that trash uh, how much he, we got to stop Trump. We got to stop Trump. We so Trumpetized, we didn't put no demands on Biden. But first, we got to increase HUD. HUD is the largest um, uh, uh, sponsor of um, NYCHA. We got to increase the HUD money for NYCHA. Two, the state has gives nothing to NYCHA, hardly anything. And out of that $193 billion budget, we have to increase a state allocation for NYCHA. Three, the city has a $92 billion budget. They have to include, and this is their expense budget. I'm not talking about the $16 billion capital budget or the multi-billion dollar city capital budget. We need to get all those three levels of government to fund NYCHA so we can get rid of RAD and PAC and this, this so-called... Um, uh, community trust or this public trust that they're talking about now. Don't trust the public trust because it's really privatizing NYCHA. And then finally, I think we need to have some partnership between the private and public sector to fund NYCHA residents in the same kind of programs like PAD and, and RAC where they want to take the Section 9 money, which is public money, and put it in Section 8 so they can privatize. Well, they'll do that same thing, but have a conglomerate of NYCHA residents should own, operate, manage NYCHA property. So if you want to do something to get another entity running NYCHA, it should be the residents. And we should have a battery of lawyers and experts to see to it that the residents get funded in order to own, operate NYCHA property. I want to talk to you more about that off the record because I know it's not, you know, the proposals that have been made, you know, are universally bad. Right. Other than what you're basically saying is not that different than what I've been saying is 
just use government money. Use, I mean, I talk about using capital programs and borrowing because this is a great time to borrow, great time for the government to borrow. I can borrow at almost zero. They do it all the time. You know, we have a, a $50, $60 billion debt in the city and state, both of them. And so where did and, all that money go? And, and, you know, when I hear about projects like uh, rebuilding the Port Authority bus terminal for $10 billion. Come on now. The money's there. You know how many times I argued with Bloomberg about the capital budget? I said, Mayor, why don't we take $100 million and that would be like $10 or $20 million and build five community youth centers in the communities that have a high crime. Oh, it's not going to happen. I, I, where are you going to get the money? I said, well, I love trees, but $260 million for trees, you can do $160 for trees and $100 million for our live trees called our youth. Uh, not going to happen. And then the city council supports him because he doesn't have power. You know, there's no power in the executive branch around passing the budget. They talk about three people in the room on the state level and that's power. No, it isn't. The governor has no vote. The head of the assembly has one. The head of the Senate has one. There are 150 assembly members, 63 senators. That's the power. But these speakers come back and say, oh, you need your bills passed. Uh, you want a bigger office? Uh, you want to head up a committee? You want some projects for your district? Then vote my way. That's the problem. The power the influence, not even the power, the influence of the speaker over the membership of the assembly and the and the Senate. That's where the power is. So and Charles, the this, and the council, we got to do that. This has been, I, I, I can't, I, I did three years of interviews on WBAI and um, um, usually two interviews an hour, like for three years. Uh, I'd have to say this has been one of the most interesting hours I've ever spent with oh, anybody. Oh, thank you. Thank uh, you. And uh, uh, given me a lot, a lot to think about. As somebody that, as a white person, becomes from a very similar perspective on on the world, and sometimes feels very lonely about it. Uh, oh, don't I know the feeling, man? And uh, look, I wish you luck on your campaign. If people want to get in touch with your campaign, is there a, like a website or? Uh, yeah, we work on. We started late, so we build in a website. But I'll send you some information on that uh, okay. right now. You know, we're um, going to get our matching funds in, um, on March 15th because we just, we started, I had to wait till the assembly race finished in November in order to start in December. So we're just getting off the ground. And um, so we'll, we'll get all that information out. Thank you so much. And thank you thank for you, giving me the hour this morning. But, uh, thank Charles Barron, assembly member, city council member to be. Uh, and this, this is... Uh, uh, Pursuing Justice 2021, which is the name of my podcast. Thank you for everybody.